Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you a new graduate or just new to adulting? This episode is supported by the Spotify podcast, Life After College, from quickanddirtytips.com. It's got advice on everything you need when you're starting life as a young adult. From staying fit without a college gym to managing money like a grown-up, you'll learn all the basics so you can adult with confidence. Listen exclusively on Spotify at bit.ly slash QDT college. bit.ly slash QDT college. Welcome. I'm Charlie Spicer, your true crime guide, and this is Case Closed. The next three episodes take place during Hemi's murder trial. It begins on Tuesday, February 21st, 2012. It's been almost two years since Rusty was shot. First, let's go through the cast of characters sitting in the courtroom. Overseeing the proceedings is Superior Court Judge Gregory A. Adams. He's a pretty big deal in DeKalb County. On one side of the courtroom, there's Hemi, sitting impassively with his lawyers Robert Rubin and Doug Peters. On the other side is DA Robert James, who led the press conference after Hemi's arrest a few episodes ago. We also have Chief Assistant DA Don Geary. In the rows of wooden benches in the audience section of the courtroom, there are two families divided. Rusty's family, his parents, his brother and sister-in-law sit together. Andrea's family, her mother and her friends, sit apart from Rusty's family. Over the course of the investigation, Rusty's family has become convinced that Andrea was involved in the murder. Also in the courtroom is the group of people who will decide Hemi's fate, a jury of nine women and three men. I'm going to be jumping in more than usual this episode with context. As we rehash the details of the case, there are moments I want to flag. Let's start with the opening statements. D.A. Robert James took his seat at the prosecution table and watched as Chief Assistant District Attorney Don Geary stood and gave the opening statement for the state. In his presentation, Geary spoke of the one person not in the courtroom, Rusty Snyderman. Retracing the bloody events of November 18, 2010, step by detailed step, Geary described how Hemi followed Rusty to the preschool parking lot, waited while Rusty dropped off Ian, then shot him. The opening statement played to the emotions while also attacking the insanity defense, but as powerful a presentation as he delivered, Geary could not hold the jury's full attention, for behind him in the audience section was Andrea sobbing uncontrollably. She drew heavy breaths as her mother comforted her. It was the first time many people had seen Andrea, a powerful impression few would forget, and not the last one she'd leave at the trial. Next, Doug Peters gave the defense opening. This case is about two good men, he said, calling Rusty Snyderman a great father to his two children, and Hemi Newman a great father to three. 
But on that morning in November, the lives of those men and their families were shattered, broken in pieces on the ground, never to be put back together again, Peter said. Why? Everyone in this courtroom and this community is looking for the answer. He told jurors to look no farther than the victim's wife. Hemi had an affair with her, Peters said, and by the end, he became convinced he had to kill Rusty to save Andrea's children, prodded into murderous action by visions of an angel and a demon. The lawyers done, Adams cleared the courtroom for a break, during which prosecutors revealed they would call Andrea first. It was a surprise, not least for her. She had not spoken to police in months, her relations with authorities souring as they continued to suggest she played a role in Rusty's murder. The state calls Andrea Snyderman. In a slow, deliberate, and businesslike fashion, Geary elicited the basic personal details from Andrea, her date of marriage, number of children, their employment histories, including her hiring at GE Energy. Geary then ventured into Andrea's relationship with Hemi Newman, a relationship that she acknowledged developed over the many hours they spent traveling for GE. The prosecutor's tone remained calm and respectful, ever mindful that the jury may empathize with the grieving widow. In the course of the time that I knew him, Andrea began, he discussed in the beginning how he was very happy with his children, had some financial problems, but happy in his marriage. Then it progressed on to, I'm not happy in my marriage and my wife, that we are not getting along. Hemi told her about his early years, going to the boarding school in Israel, only he called it an extremely positive influence, Andrea testified, with Hemi telling her he became a leader and made many friends. Remember, Hemi told the various psychologists that his time in Israel was terrible and that he stayed in a shack in January. Back to Geary. Ever tell you about encountering a demon? asked Geary, his first of many jabs at the defense theory. No, she said. Instead, she talked to Hemi about everything from hobbies I had, to my children's interests, to Rusty's business ventures, to previous jobs I had had. Did you consider him a friend at that time? Yes. How would you describe him prior to November 18th? Extremely friendly individual, caring. Pretending to be a caring individual, she added. Prior to November 18th, 2010, did the defendant tell you ever that he was having hallucinations? No, he appeared to be an extremely normal individual. At the defense table, Hemi sat and watched. Sometimes he would look up at her through his glasses, sometimes looking down, his expression neutral. Andrea seemed nervous. She wrung her hands in her lap and twitched. She spoke so softly at times that the judge had her repeat answers. Did the defendant ever express his feelings to you? asked Geary. Yes, she said, and recalled the business trip to Minden, Nevada. Before dinner, we were outside the restaurant, and he pulled out his phone and read a poem. The insinuation of the poem to me was that he had deeper feelings for me than just friends. Is that the only time prior to November 18th, 2010, that he expressed that to you? It's the only time that he expressed it in that way. There were other times where, in passing or in a fleeting moment, he would seem to be expressing feelings for me. None of those feelings were ever returned, and I made myself completely clear where I stood. Did you ever tell Rusty about the poem or the defendant's feelings towards you? No. Why not? I really thought that I could handle it, she said. I knew if I told Rusty that I would quit my job, and it was the only source of income we had at the time. I thought I had everything under control. 
Did you ever report the defendant's conduct to anybody at GE? No. Why not? The question brought a change to Andrea. Her voice took on a firm tone, like she was lecturing the prosecutor. I would have been fired, she said. I think that it's fairly clear in writing how those things are handled. But I think that any woman that works in a corporation that has just started her career over again, almost for the second time, knows if you were to report something like that, and you only worked at the company for two or three months, your chance of success at that company are pretty limited. There are many moments throughout Andrea's testimony where her demeanor shifts. This moment in particular is important as we contextualize this case. It's 2010, before the Me Too movement, before these conversations were happening across the country. Andrea's decision to not tell HR was because she had had to navigate a male-dominated workplace at GE. As much as we might believe the jurors and the press could see past this lecturing tone of her testimony, it will affect their perception of her. Back to the testimony. Geary then brought her through her business trips with Hemi, starting with a trip to Norfolk. Do you remember that trip, sharing a bottle of wine? Andrea appeared thrown off by the question. I think almost every time I sat down to a business dinner, I had a bottle of wine. He presented her with a receipt for a $50 bottle of wine. Andrea leaned forward and stared at Geary. I never picked the wine that we drank. Shown more receipts and then emails, she gave variations on the same answer. She either didn't remember things or downplayed the significance of them. Geary played a video of Andrea talking to Deputy Chief David Sides the day after Hemi's arrest, in which she was asked if Hemi had been with her in Colorado, and she stammered. No, I do not. I know that. I'm trying to think. Do you remember now? Geary asked her. I don't know, she said. If that's what I said, then that's what I said. It was, Geary suggested, not the kind of trip she'd forget, with the email from Hemi with a picture of roses, and her reply about that being thoughtful and a sweet gesture. Asked if that was her email, she answered, yup. It was a word she'd use increasingly often, her answers becoming more terse. Geary showed her additional emails, from Hemi to her, from her to Hemi, more trips, more hotels, more wine. Andrea replied to Geary as if he were a child, condescension in her voice. She shrugged her shoulders and she glared. She didn't remember everything Hemi told her, and she didn't remember what she told him back. How could she? It was so long ago. Then she'd say, if the emails say it, then it must have happened, but not the way it looks. That condescension is back again. Her sharpness with the DA. But remember, Andrea isn't the one on trial here. Hemi is. Their relationship was relevant, yes, but the defense is trying to incriminate Andrea on the stand during the trial of another person. She was shown receipts from their first trip to Greenville. There was an overnight, followed by emails filled with guilt and remorse and anger, emails Andrea read aloud in court as they were projected on a screen for the jurors and audience to see. What happened in Greenville, ma'am? We were holding each other's hands, she said, and that's it. It may sound worse than it is, but to me, that was a betrayal. So you're repenting, in the email at least, from holding his hand? Yup. 
As a reminder, the text of Andrea's email to Hemi was, I really don't know what to say at this point. I'm angry. Your apology is heartfelt, but it does not make the ongoing pain go away that I now have to repent and live with the rest of my life. You can see why Geary was suspicious that the email was not just about holding hands. She took a deep breath, and the questioning continued. She didn't remember him telling her he loved her. She considered his email about wanting to marry her ridiculous. Most of the things he said or wrote she never kept track of or paid much attention to. They were just a handful out of thousands of emails that were otherwise benign. He was being silly, she said, mannish. Then he'd go back to being her friend and she wouldn't worry about it. She never told G.E. She never told Rusty. She felt comfortable enough with Hemi that she went to the U.K. with him. Repeatedly, she insisted the emails weren't an accurate picture of what was happening. For the rest of the afternoon in court, she responded with sarcastic replies of yep and nope. She treated each email as a revelation, a dim memory to her that meant nothing at the time and even less now. Every time I revisit this trial and Andrea's sarcastic and lecturing replies, I go back and forth. Is Andrea defensive because she did push Hemi to kill her husband? Or is she defensive because she did not? Again, Hemi is the one on trial here. And yet they are trying to place blame on Andrea. People cheat on their spouses all the time. People cheat with rational, calm people they work with all the time. Did Andrea know Hemi was literally delusional? Or is she just another victim here? Cheating isn't a crime but it doesn't add credibility to a woman testifying in a murder trial. After the break, Andrea's testimony continues. This episode is supported by the highly anticipated thriller The Escape Room by Megan Golden. Vincent, Jules, Sylvie, and Sam are Wall Street hotshots at the top of their game. They've mastered the art of the deal and celebrate their success in style. And they love to compete. So they jump at the chance to show off their skills in an escape room. But when the lights go off and the doors stay shut, it quickly becomes clear that this is no harmless competition. This is a fight for survival. Trapped in the dark, the colleagues must put aside their rivalries and work together to solve cryptic clues. But as the game begins to reveal the team's darkest secrets, the stakes mount higher and higher. As tempers fray and the clues turn deadly, they must solve one final chilling puzzle. Which one of them will kill in order to survive? Pre-order The Escape Room by Megan Golden wherever you buy books. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. Today's episode is supported by the true crime podcast, Murderish. Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall during a murder trial? Get your fix with Murderish, a podcast that covers gripping murder cases from beginning to end. You'll get to know the victims and perpetrators, how their worlds collided, and how the trial got resolved. The host, Jamie, even shares her own personal experience being the jury foreman on a first-degree murder trial, as well as a terrifying personal story about the time a stranger came into her bedroom at night. 
Murderish covers the historic crimes you've already heard of and the under-the-radar ones you may have missed. Get Murderish today. Search Murderish in your favorite podcast app, hit subscribe, and start binging. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-I-S-H. And remember, listening to Murderish doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Let's jump back into the courtroom. Geary turned to Andrea's second trip to Greenville with Hemi and asked her if she went to a restaurant called Pulse. Andrea said that accounts that she kissed Hemi were wrong. I guess you have people that have said that that did occur. Do you have any idea why someone would believe you were kissing him? Geary asked. She shrugged. No, I don't. Without prompting, she added, In this case, when you are talking about alleged affairs and someone else's husband being murdered, I think people tend to think they saw a lot of things. Well, let me ask you that, said Gary. This is a gentleman, up to that point in time, who asked you to marry him at least twice that we're aware of, correct? She began to sniffle. Correct. And has expressed his love for you in just emails numerous times, correct? Correct. And you're going to a dance club, drinking with him, correct? I didn't go to the dance club as a drinking activity, and nor did I know at the time that it was a dance club until we got in there. But yes, I was there. Did you have adjoining rooms in that trip in Greenville? Uh, yep. Geary shifts to that intriguing bit in the phone records about Hemi calling Andrea while near the gun show. Geary asked, Did the defendant ever tell you he was going to a gun show in Dalton? No. On October 31st of 2010, did the defendant text you while he was at the gun show in Dalton, telling you that he was there? Telling me that he was at a gun show? Yes, ma'am. I do not remember him texting me that. Now, is this like the other emails, that it could have happened, you just don't remember? No, I'm pretty sure I would remember a gun show. Geary then asked her about the morning Rusty called 911 to report a man on the side of the house. She recounted how Rusty had called her at work to tell her what happened. And as soon as Rusty ended that call, or you ended that call, who did you call? I have no idea. I was at work, so I was presumably doing work things. Any idea why you would immediately call the defendant after talking to Rusty? I'm sure it was... No, I'm sure it was work-related, she said. It does seem coincidental, but I'm sure that there was something else going on that I had to call him about. And I had a meeting with Hemi that day, and I told Hemi exactly what happened on the side of my house. Why would you do that? I told the person that worked for me. I told Hemi, and told like six other people also what happened on the side of the house, because it was bizarre and scary. And he stared at me and looked at me, and it was him the whole time. Did you know that then? No. How could I know that? He was sitting there like an absolute normal individual. He came to work. He was at work. For all I know, he was at work the entire time. We don't work in the same building. I don't know where he was at that time. Rusty didn't recognize him. How would Rusty recognize him? He was wearing a disguise. Andrea's answers kept getting testier and testier as the proceedings went on. At one point, the judge had to warn Andrea because she interrupted Geary in an unpleasant way. By the time Geary asked her how she found out about the shooting, her nerves were frayed. Andrea said that in the phone call from the daycare, they said there has been an accident and that they didn't really tell her if the accident was directed to Rusty, as Geary put it, that she didn't really remember. 
After receiving the call from Donna at the preschool, Andrea recalled running to the parking lot and driving to the preschool, making several calls along the way. Do you remember who you called? Geary asked. She sighed. My parents, my brother, Rusty's parents, she said. Rusty's parents, do you remember who you talked to? I talked to Rusty's dad, she pointed him out in the audience section. I said something's happened to Rusty. I have no idea what, and that's all I said, and I was belligerent on the phone. At that time, did you know what had happened to Rusty? Andrea leaned forward again. No, she said, her voice full of restrained rage. I didn't know what had happened to Rusty until I got to the emergency room. No one told me what happens to Rusty. Then Geary throws a curveball. How many times did Andrea try to call Rusty, he asks. Call Rusty? Andrea seemed taken aback by the question. Why didn't you call Rusty? Because they just told me something had happened to Rusty, she replied. Andrea becomes combative here as Geary persists in this line of questioning. If she didn't know what happened to Rusty, why didn't she try to call him? Again, the judge had to intervene. Geary asks a different question. How long did she stay at the daycare center when she got there? She couldn't remember. She does remember falling out of her car upon seeing the police officers and the crime scene tape. Someone carried her into the school. She was in shock. I remember they sat me down in this office that they have, this little office room. I remember one of Sophia's former teachers, Katrina is her name, she came in. She was hugging me, couldn't let me go. No one was talking. No one was saying a word. No one would tell me what happened. And then, eventually, Gary Cordellino from the Dunwoody Police Department sat down in front of me and started asking me questions. Eventually, my parents came from Roswell because I was on the phone with them almost the entire way to the daycare, she said. Then she put her mouth up to the microphone so her words were loud and clear. I was on the phone with them on the entire way to the daycare. They were keeping me company in the car, she said, adopting her lecturing tone, because I was beside myself. Yes, ma'am. No time to call Rusty in there, she said. Eventually, with the help of her brother and father, they tracked down the hospital where Rusty was taken. When you went to the Atlanta Medical Center, ma'am, did you find out what happened to Rusty? They took me into what I call the death room and sat in a chair and someone, I have no idea who, they came over and said that he came in with multiple gunshot wounds and that he was dead. I don't remember anything they said after that. I fell to the floor. You found out at the hospital that Rusty had been shot. That's correct. Is that the first time you found out he was dead? Yep. And you found out he was shot? Andrea answered. Yep. As I've said before, I think it's interesting to note how much the prosecution focuses on Andrea. Next time, we finish Andrea's testimony and the first day of the trial. Did she know that Hemi was the killer? Is her knowledge relevant to the case at all? The argument isn't whether or not Hemi is guilty, but whether or not he was unable to tell right from wrong when he shot Rusty. Both sides have put so much emphasis on Andrea, and this emphasis will come back in the next episode and through the rest of the series. How much can we blame the actions of one person on another? We'll explore that question and more when we return to Case Closed. 
Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. This season is based on the book Crazy for You by Michael Fleeman. Get the book or the audiobook using the link in our show notes. The show is produced by Becky Celestina with help from Sarah Grill and Alyssa Martino. We also want to thank Michael Fleeman. Can't wait to hear what really happened to Rusty Snyderman? Hear all of this season right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash case closed and use code closed to start your free trial. I'm Charlie Spicer. Thanks so much for listening. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.